Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or an hour or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. This one may be a bit of a long podcast, let me warn you, because the Supreme Court just finished its term. Uh, The court's term runs from the 1st of October uh, through the last week in June, and typically the Supreme Court will bunch up a whole lot of its significant cases uh, towards the end of uh, the term. So you'll see these bang, bang, bang releases in the second week, third week, and fourth week of June. And that was the case this year. It's the case every year. It was the case this year. Uh, of course, you had a big voting rights decision. Uh, you also had a decision on whether or not uh, somebody who designs websites uh, should be forced to design a website for a gay couple, uh, which raised all sorts of significant discrimination issues. And it also was the case with three individual cases that are going to have some significance in the public safety labor world. And I'll take them one at a time, roughly in the order that I think they will have significance. And so the first one is a case called Groff versus DeJoy. And Groff versus DeJoy deals with an employer's obligation to reasonably accommodate religious beliefs in the workforce. So let me set the stage for this case a little bit. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act has really a potpourri of different religious protection uh, clauses in it that have been added by Congress over the years. Particularly as Congress has gotten more conservative, uh, you see congressional enactments enactments, uh, that more and more favor the right to free exercise of religion. Uh, And all of those things are collected in Title VII. And Title VII of the Civil Rights Act requires employers in our case, the one that, the issue that we care about now, requires employers to reasonably accommodate the religious practice of their employees unless doing so would impose an undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. Fix those two words in your head, undue hardship. Uh, when Congress writes something like that, typically, It does not say undue hardship means X, whatever X might be. It leaves it up to the courts to figure out what undue hardship is. Does that make sense as a system of government? I really don't think so because Congress should be saying exactly what it thinks is prohibited and permitted. Admittedly, it can't do so for every possible factual situation But it can do a lot better than stringing two words, undo and hardship, together, right? Well, in any case, it didn't take long for the Supreme Court to have to decide what undo hardship meant. And it decided it in 1977 in a case called Trans World Airlines versus Hardison. And uh, I'll just refer to this as the TWA case. We'll 
post it in the show notes so that you can see it because it still has a, a bit of validity even after what happened in the Supreme Court in June. So what goes on in uh, TWA versus Hardison? Well, uh, that's a an employee who works for, of course, TWA, and he wants part of the weekend off. And why does he want part of the weekend off? Uh, because he belongs to a religion that commands him to keep the Sabbath holy and prohibits working on the Sabbath. Uh, what's the problem with that? That might seem like a reasonable accommodation. Well, the problem in TWA was that this employee's desire uh, to have part of the weekend off ran headlong into a seniority clause in a collective bargaining agreement. And the Supreme Court in the case says, look, Title VII is pretty clear about the relationship between reasonable accommodation and seniority. And Title VII does not require an employer to breach a seniority clause in a collective bargaining agreement in order to accommodate some other employee's religious preferences. Uh, and the court ends up saying, and I'm quoting, uh, that this conclusion uh, was, quote, supported by the fact that seniority systems are afforded special treatment under Title VII itself. So what else did the court do in TWA? And in particular, what did it do that caused last week's decision? And what it did was to try to uh, define what undue hardship meant. And it ended up with a phrase that an undue hardship meant any accommodation that would require the employer, quote, to bear more than a de minimis cost. And if the employer had to bear more than a de minimis cost, then the accommodation wasn't reasonable and the employer didn't have to offer the accommodation. Well, it's pretty easy to tell uh, that under that de minimis cost uh, definition of undue hardship, employees with religious beliefs weren't winning many cases, right? Because employers were almost always able to point to a de minimis cost, de minimis meaning something that costs anything at all, either monetarily or in terms of the employer's operational efficiency. And so we had this uh, now, now fairly huge body of law, some of which uh, involved public safety employees, some of which involved firefighters and law enforcement officers wanting to work particular shifts. Uh, this huge body of law where employees lost all of these claims, or at least the employees advancing uh, the argument that they their religious beliefs should be accommodated. Fast forward to 2012 and Gerald Groff. Gerald Groff is an evangelical Christian who believes that for religious reasons, Sunday should be devoted to worship and rest. 
Why Sunday? Well, different denominations of Christianity uh, label either sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, Saturday as the Sabbath, and some label Sunday as their Sabbath. Uh, the first tradition, uh, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, is that that was the practices of uh, the Jews who preceded Jesus, and it it was all they were also the practices of the Jews for uh, and Christians for the next three hundred years, and then Constantine the Great changed all that in A.D. 321, and now Sunday is the Sabbath for the majority of Christian religions, and certainly Groff's evangelical religion, Sunday is his Saturday. Uh, Groff takes a mail job with the United States Postal Service. His job generally didn't involve Sunday work, no problem so far, but that changes after the Postal Service agrees to begin facilitating Sunday deliveries for Amazon. And in order to avoid the requirement to work Sundays on a rotating basis, Groff first transfers to a rural postal service station that didn't make Sunday deliveries. Uh, but then Amazon deliveries start up at that station as well. Groff remains unwilling to work Sundays and the Postal Service ends up redistributing Groff's Sunday deliveries to other Postal Service staff. And the implication is, at least sometimes, on an overtime basis. Groff eventually receives progressive discipline for refusing to work Sundays, it's insubordination after all, and he eventually resigns. And then uh, he sues. And his argument is, TWA is wrongly decided. That de minimis test, that has no place in the law because something can't simultaneously be an undue hardship and also cause only de minimis adverse impacts on an employer. Those two terms, uh, Groff is arguing, they're, they're simply not consistent with each other. That case makes it up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and actually both sides agree. Uh, Groff agrees, and the Solicitor General on behalf of the Biden administration agree that the de minimis test has got to go. Doesn't make any sense under undue hardship. And they totally disagree as to what standard should be used instead of the de minimis test but they both agree that some change has to be made here. And this opinion in the Groff case actually ends up being one of the rare unanimous opinions of this Supreme Court. And so here's what the court ends up saying uh, an undue hardship means. Uh, the court ends up saying that, I'm quoting, we think it is enough to say that an employer must show that the burden of granting an accommodation would result in substantial increased costs in relation to the conduct of its business. What matters more than a favored synonym for undue hardship is that the courts 
must apply the test in a manner that takes into account all relevant factors, including the particular accommodations at issue and their practical impact in light of the nature, size, and operating cost of an employer, end quote. Well, does anybody understand that, what that actually means? Has the Supreme Court actually given us a definition here? I mean, this is an opinion written by Samuel Alito, who's one of the least clear Supreme Court judges in the way he writes his opinion. And this one, when you get to the punchline, when you get to the holding, what the standard is going to be, uh, you, you just don't find anything that's particularly helpful. Here's the way Justice Alito ends this opinion. Without foreclosing the possibility that the Postal Service will prevail, so the Postal Service may win here, we think it appropriate to leave it to the lower courts to apply our clarified context-specific standard and to decide when any, whether any further factual development is needed. So in other words, courts, you need to go out there and you need to apply this standard that you must take into account, quote, all relevant factors in the case at hand, including the particular accommodations at issue and their practical impact in light of the nature, size, and operating cost of the employer. Uh, it is very, very easy to predict that we are going to see years and years of litigation with courts on all sides of the issue as to what undue hardship now means under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. So uh, let me make just a, a couple of other points. And the first one is, I said this was probably the most impactful of the three cases the Supreme Court addressed over the course of the last week. There's not that many people, though, who put in for religious exemptions uh, based upon uh, whatever their Sabbath might be. Why do, I, why do I think it's so impactful? It's because undue hardship is used in other civil rights laws. And most importantly, it's used in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And public safety employees are involved in ADA, reasonable accommodation issues, all of the time. They may be the biggest category of employees bringing reasonable accommodation cases under the ADA. And you can just bet that we are now going to see arguments as to what an undue hardship is uh, in the context of ADA cases. You're going to see those explode in the coming months and years. And the second thing that you may be wondering about in the back of your head. Uh, I, I told you that the TWA case, the big issue in the TWA case is what happens when the obligation to reasonably accommodate runs headlong into a seniority clause. What does the Groff case do to that standard? It doesn't touch it. You can get into the Groff case uh, download it in word form and do a search for the word seniority. And you'll see the 
court talks about it a little bit in setting the historical stage of TWA, but there's absolutely no hint whether the uh, years and years of ruling that a seniority clause trumps the obligation to reasonable, reasonably accommodate, there's absolutely no hint that the Supreme Court is touching that at all. Now, in the end, how is that case going to come out? How's that issue going to come out? Uh, kind of tough to predict. Uh, I think right now with the six to three conservative majority that we have on the Supreme Court, uh, you can expect to see the court tied up in knots on this issue. Uh, because uh, you're going to have the court's natural allegiance uh, to employers. This court rules in favor of employers over 90% of the time now. You're going to find its natural allegiance to employers uh, tied up with an understanding that any decisions that it makes in the ADA context may turn around and apply in the religious discrimination context which may be troubling to the court. We're in for uh, several years of very interesting litigation on this issue. Okay, next up, affirmative action. Uh, you no doubt have seen news stories or uh, read about uh, the Supreme Court ending affirmative action. And the affirmative action decision, which we're going to post with the show notes, uh, is called Students for Fair Admissions uh, versus the President and Fellows of Harvard College. Great title. Uh, and uh, it, it's kind of accurate to say the Supreme Court ended affirmative action, at least on the basis of race, but not really as you'll hear me talk about in just a moment. Uh, first of all, why am I putting this only in second position in terms of uh, importance in the public safety labor world? And the reason is uh, a number of states, well over a dozen states in this country, have already declared affirmative action illegal, most prominently uh, California has, through a ballot measure at long ago, uh, declared affirmative action to be against the law. So it hasn't played that much of an impact in the public safety labor world. Secondly, uh, in the public safety labor world, you find employers much more cautious about how they are treating the issue of race than you sometimes find with universities, where universities will earmark certain positions uh, for race or will not so subtly uh, do it in a disguised fashion. Uh, in the public safety labor world, you see much more of a focus on attempting to accomplish racial diversity through recruiting on a socioeconomic basis which can be a proxy, often is a proxy in this country for race. So I just don't think the Supreme Court doing whatever it was it did in this case on affirmative action, I just don't think that's going to resound in police departments, fire departments and the like around the country 
not with the same impact that a potential change in reasonable accommodation and what that means, uh, not to that degree of impact that you're going to see. Okay, so with that, I'm gonna spend only a couple of minutes on this case. Uh, as I said, we're putting it in the show notes. If you wanna read the whole case, uh, it's only 256 pages long, including the dissenting opinions. Um, you know, have a couple cups of coffee, set aside a couple of hours, and you'll make it through the opinion. Uh, by the way, the uh, reasonable accommodation opinion, only 32 pages long. So what's going on in this case? Uh, this is a combined lawsuit against two universities, Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. Uh, both of them have affirmative action plans, and in both of their affirmative action plans, you ended up with the result that different races were impacted differently. So the application of the affirmative action plan uh, increase the number of black people who were black students who were being admitted uh, into both of the colleges uh, seemed to have a relatively neutral impact on the degree to which Latino students were admitted into the college had a slightly negative impact, not a big one, but a slightly negative impact on the number of white students admitted to the colleges and had a hugely negative impact on the number of Asian students who were admitted. And the, the lawsuit against Harvard, at least, was brought by a group of Asian students challenging an affirmative action program. That's something you never would have thought possible like 20 or 30 years ago. And the Supreme Court ends up saying uh, that it is impermissible under the 14th Amendment's equal protection guarantees. Uh, it is impermissible to use race for a public entity to use race to make decision-making that impacts in some fashion uh, individuals on the basis of their race. Uh, now that decision-making can occur in a wide variety of contexts. It can occur certainly in admission to schools. It can occur with respect to employment all over the place, right? Both with respect to hiring and also with respect to uh, promotion. Uh, and, and so the decision in this case will have some impact, but as I said, I don't think a huge impact uh, in the public safety employment world. Anybody who's out there uh, using something that is a thinly disguised quota uh, on the basis of race, well, your program's going to be illegal. You're going to have to rewrite it. Now, the last thing I want to say about this case, as I told you, I think this is, uh, first of all, it's an entirely predictable result from this court, right? And secondly, uh, I think this is not going to be a decision with huge impact. But remember I said that the court's decision prohibits affirmative action, sort of? Why do I say that? It's because Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion in this case, 
uh, wrote a sentence that has a lot of people focused on it. Now, you've heard probably a bit about the personality of Chief Justice Roberts, how he wants to try to bridge the gap between the conservative and liberal wings of the Supreme Court. He himself is a pretty deeply conservative justice, um, but he has a view that chief justices of the Supreme Court sometimes have that the collegiality, the unification of the views on the court is more important than the results in individual cases. I mean, you saw this once upon a time, way back in the 1950s, with the landmark desegregation case, Brown versus Board of Education, where with the first votes on the court uh, of the nine justices, uh, you barely had a majority seeking to strike down racially segregated schools. But by the time uh, one of the fairly conservative justices on the court, former Republican governor of California, Earl Warren, was done, he had a unanimous opinion. Uh, and because he thought that the credibility of the court uh, overrode his particular views in that case. Well, John Roberts has some of those same tendencies as Earl Warren did, and so he has always tried, or not always, at least in the last few years, trying to bridge the gap between both sides of the court. And it, it, the only way you can plausibly read this sentence is with that thought in mind, the bridge, the gap, thought in mind. Here's what Judge Roberts says after, right after he says, you can't use race to make college decisions. Quote, at the same time, as all parties agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. Well, what's that mean? That means race isn't completely out of the picture. Let me take it out of the employment context for just a minute. Those of you who have kids who have gone through the college admissions process recently, um, and we've got two of them, uh, you know that the essay that, uh, that applicants are required to write is crucially important. Isn't Justice Roberts telling students what needs to be in their essay and how it should be phrased. Nothing prohibits universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. That's precisely what he is doing, is he's telling everybody, here's a not-so-subtle proxy for race. And you can see how that would apply in the employment context as well. Now, is this going to be a solution that will pre uh, preserve some vestige of affirmative action? Uh, bluntly, I don't think so. Uh, because, uh, the, you know, affirmative action plans get 
the problem with them, you know, the court found, was that they are disparate treatment of applicants on the basis of race. But disparate treatment is only one of two types of illegally discriminatory actions. The others are actions that on their face don't reference a protected class like race or religion, but have a disproportionate impact on race or religion. If we end up seeing college applications uh, from racial minority groups that are now overwhelmingly being accepted because they're referencing the role race plays in their life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise, aren't we going to be having a disparate impact on the basis of race? I don't know. Uh, I just unfortunately don't think this debate is remotely completely done. Uh, thankfully, we just won't be seeing a ton of it in the employment context. Finally, our third case from the Supreme Court. This is not one where the court actually issued a decision. Rather, it granted what's known as a writ of certiorari. Uh, what is a writ of certiorari? Uh, it's a, a old English term that basically means a higher court has agreed to hear an appeal from a lower court. So in granting cert, as it's called, uh, in this case, the Supreme Court uh, has signaled that it will be deciding this case on the merits uh, sometime in its 2023 term. So sometime between September 2023 and June of 2024. Uh, what's the case? It's called Muldrow, M-U-L-D-R-O-W versus St. Louis. Uh, well, I'll put the decision in the show notes. Uh, and this is a case that comes up time and time again. So under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, an employee who is bringing a lawsuit, whether it be for uh, sexual discrimination or race discrimination, any form of discrimination prohibited by Title VII, or whether it be for harassment, sexual, gender harassment, whatever it might be. An employee who's bringing uh, that sort of lawsuit has to show that they have been a victim of an adverse employment action taken on the part of the employer, okay? So they don't just have to show uh, that they're in a particular race and that they were the victim of discrimination, they have to show that something bad happened to them, an adverse employment action. Uh, and the question that this case is going to answer for us is under what circumstances, if any, is a transfer an adverse employment action? This actually happens to be a police case. Rarely do we find police cases going up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this involves a sergeant by the name of Jatanya Muldrow. I'm sure I'm pronouncing at least one of her names. Uh, shes I'll just call her sergeant. Uh, she's a sergeant with the St. Louis Police Department. Uh, and she was in a specialized unit that 
uh, worked on joint task force with the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation. She got uh, a number of perks associated with that task force. So, for example, she uh, she got a car that was provided by the FBI. Uh, she got an amount of overtime up to $17,000 a year. And she got a day shift. Um, and she, by all accounts, did a reasonable job uh, on this FBI task force. Well, then a, uh, a new chief in St. Louis appoints a new commander over the task force who decides uh, he wants to put his, his own people in. Uh, and as a result, uh, Muldrow is transferred. Uh, she's not the only one. Uh, many uh, officers were transferred. My recollection is 10 of them were transferred out of the unit. Uh, and Muldrow brings a lawsuit saying, I am being involuntarily transferred because my supervisor wanted to hire a man for the job. And this goes through the federal court system, ends up at the 8th Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, and in the Eighth Circuit, uh, the court rules for the police department. And the basis was that Muldrow's transfer had not resulted in a significant employment disadvantage to her. Muldrow then appeals to the Supreme Court, and the court, uh, the way it decides whether it's going to take a case on certiorari is they, uh, they have their law clerks read read all of the briefs in the case, make recommendations, and the, the nine judges vote. And if they've got four judges who want to hear the case, then they grant certiorari. And that's what happened in this case. Uh, and uh, the court ended up uh, taking the or issuing a one-sentence clue as to what it wants the lawyers in the case to focus on. Uh, they are asking the lawyers to focus on, and I'm mostly quoting here, whether Title VII bars discrimination in transfer decisions if a court has not determined separately that the transfer decision caused a significant disadvantage. And that's going to pose some problems, that wording of the issue that the court talk has uh, described here. It's going to pose some problems for the court in the consideration of this case. What it is suggesting is that there is such a thing as a mere transfer that does not come with any attendant employment disadvantages, much less in the words of the court, significant employment disadvantages. Now, I'll bet you, if you ask 100 police officers, did Muldrow suffer a significant employment disadvantage as a result of her transfer, roughly 100 out of 100 would say, sure, she lost her free car. That's an economic disadvantage. Uh, she ended up being assigned to rotating shifts rather than a day shift. And she ended up with different overtime opportunities without that 
uh, seemingly almost guarantee of $17,000 of overtime uh, in a year. I bet pretty much every law enforcement officer would say those are significant disadvantages. Uh, now, is the Supreme Court going to think the same thing? It seems to be conjuring up in its head that there are transfer decisions without any disadvantages whatsoever. Maybe, but those are going to be few and far between. You can imagine, for example, a transfer between stations where commuting time and commuting expense is, uh, is going to be very, very different than it would have been before. You can imagine, as in the St. Louis case, where the opportunities for overtime are different in one assignment versus another. It's really going to be interesting to follow this case, and I'll keep you up to speed on it uh, once we get to the oral arguments in the case, which should probably be held given when the court granted cert in this case, maybe November or December. Next up, I have a couple of pieces of news that I want to talk about. Uh, first of all, the uh, virtually all of the public safety agencies in the city of New York have finally settled their contracts and are at the point for, the, for most of them for the first time in many, many years, more than a decade, where they do not have expired collective bargaining agreements. Uh, the P Police Benevolent Association went first, the PBA. Uh, it ended up agreeing to an eight-year contract. Uh, the eight-year contract goes all the way back to August 1, 2017. Uh, and the eight-year contract calls for gradually stepped-up raises, somewhere between two and a quarter percent, uh, all the way up to four percent. If you compound all of the raises, uh, it's a 28.20% increase over eight years. And with the compounding, it comes out to an average of 3.5%. Uh, that settlement was reached back in March. Uh, the settlement that was just reached in, uh, over the course of the last uh, couple of weeks or so is that 11 other unions representing uniform city employees uh, ended up with roughly the same deal, in fact, virtually identical deal. These were unions that represented the rank-and-file firefighters, uh, corrections officers, NYPD's sergeants, captains, and lieutenants. They're all in separate unions, and even sanitation uh, workers. Uh, and so all of them received essentially the same deal that the PBA received. Uh, this is actually uh, significant not just for the fact that these unions are no longer in a retroactive mode, which takes a bit of the pressure off bargaining, right? But it's also significant because for the first time ever that I can recall, and I, I only go back several decades here, but for the first time ever, uh, these uniformed unions actually broke parity with other city employees. 
uh, in particular, broke parity with the teachers. Now, it, they seem to, the public safety unions seem to have gotten a little more money. We're not talking about a lot. We're talking about maybe half a percent or a percent over the course of eight years. So we're not talking about a lot of money, but it's significant that they did because New York City was one of the last cities in the country to have a model of wage parity, or as they call it in New York City, pattern bargaining, where what one union gets, all unions get. That doesn't make any sense anymore, pattern bargaining, in an environment where we can't recruit uh, any type of public safety employee anymore, particularly police officers and corrections officers, but also firefighters have recruitment challenges. And when you've got recruitment and retention problems, you're going to have to focus on the particular employees that you can't hire and retain. You can't, uh, if you're an employer, you can't simply say, well, we're going to treat every single one of our employees the same. Because if you do, you're going to exacerbate, not ameliorate your recruitment and retention problems. So uh, this is a good step albeit a baby step, in the right direction in New York City. Another little piece of news that I want to share with you uh, comes to us from the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission that has told us now how it intends to apply uh, the equal protection laws in a hiring situation in the face of artificial intelligence. Uh, and we are going to see, inevitably, we are already seeing the use of artificial intelligence in the hiring process. And we have posted a summary, pretty good summary, from uh, a law firm that is known as Ford Harrison. That's an employer-side law firm. We've posted that in our show notes. And let me just summarize for you what the EEOC is saying. The EEOC is saying, look, employers, you can use AI, artificial intelligence, in your hiring process, but if it violates our four-fifths our four rule, uh, we are going to consider that to be evidence of discrimination against applicants. What in the world does any of that mean? What's the four-fifth rules? Uh, so the four-fifth rule is a pro the proposition that one rate of passage of a test or hiring or whatever it might be, one rate is substantially different than another, which carries with it an implication of discrimination, if their ratio is less than four-fifths or 80%. Well, what does that mean? The, the best way to get at that is with an example. So here's the example that comes to us from the EEOC's uh, technical uh, assistance document on the four-fifths rule in AI. Let's say an employer administers a test to 80 white applicants and 40 black applicants. Of the 80 white applicants, 48 pass. Of the 40 black applicants, 
12 pass. So the selection rate for white applicants is 48 out of 80, or 60%. And the selection rate for black applicants is 12 out of 40, or 30%. The ratio of those two rates is 30 to 60. And if you divide 30 by 60, you get 50%. And because 50% is lower than four-fifths, 80%, that means the EEOC is going to consider that to be evidence of discrimination. I am not going to spend any more time about this, on this, other than to say, if you're using artificial intelligence in your hiring or your promotion systems, you better sharpen your spreadsheet skills uh, because you're going to have to test it against this four-fifths rule. All right, let me uh, finish by talking about something a little bit less arcane. Uh, let's talk about arbitration. And let's talk about what happens when the parties to a collective bargaining agreement disagree as to whether arbitration hearings should be in-person or remote. Now, of course, we've had huge issues with remote hearings versus in-person hearings uh, over the course of the pandemic. Uh, we seem to be moving now largely back to in-person hearings. Uh, I've heard people argue both sides of the question as to whether or not a remote hearing can possibly be as good and effective as a, an in-person hearing. Count me among the skeptics on that. I think in-person in hearings really have little substitute, but hey, I'm just one vote in all of this. Uh, and a more important vote is an arbitrator who was hearing that precise question, arbitrator by the name of Bonnie, in a case involving the Department of Veterans Affairs and a union known as AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. This arbitration involved a suspension of seven days. The employer said, let's do this virtually. Let's have a remote hearing. Um, and the union said, nope, we want an in-person hearing. So who ends up getting uh, to decide that? the arbitrator is going to, who is going to hear the case is going to decide whether it's a remote or an in-person uh, uh, hearing. And the arbitrator says, you know what I'm going to be guided by? I'm going to be guided by an advisory opinion. If you're counting advisory opinion number 26 of the National Academy of Arbitrators, we'll post that in our show notes here. And I'm going to be guided by that to answer the question of whether an arbitrator can order that a hearing proceed by way of video if one of the parties wants an in-person hearing. And so here's what the arbitrator ends up concluding. And I'm going to read you about three sentences here out of the arbitrator's opinion. Uh, he writes, the advisory opinion provides that in the absence of a collective bargaining agreement or some sort of ad hoc agreement of the parties prohibiting such an arrangement, 
an arbitrator in exceptional circumstances may order that a matter proceed by way of a video hearing without the consent of both sides. So it's an exceptional circumstances test. Uh, so the default, this arbitrator is saying, is going to be an in-person hearing unless one side or the other can show exceptional circumstances. Back to the arbitrator's opinion. In making such a ruling, the arbitrator must determine that a video hearing is necessary in order to provide a fair and effective hearing. So in other words, there has to be something wrong about an in-person hearing that's going to deprive one party or the other of the ability to effectively put on their case. Uh, that could be, for example, witness unavailability due to uh, COVID or some other condition. Uh, it could be a variety of different things, but it's not going to be simply we want to have a remote hearing. So how does the arbitrator end up analyzing this dispute between the Veterans Administration and AFGE? Here's what he says, quote, the agency seeks to hold the hearing in this case by video conference for reasons of cost efficiency. The union desires an in-person hearing because that has been the standard practice of the parties over many years. And because this case involves a suspension for multiple specifications of misconduct that will require close attention to the documentary evidence, neither party mentioned health risks posed by the continuing COVID-19 pandemic as, the part, as part of their reasons for uh, advocating for particular hearing formats. Uh, the arbitrator ends up saying, look, Simply the fact that it is going to cost more doesn't create the special circumstances necessary to order a video hearing over the objection of the other party. Speed and inexpensiveness, uh, the arbitrator says, go to efficiency and are at the heart of the agency's reasons for requesting we hold this hearing by video conference. Were the parties to hold the hearing by video conference? I could schedule the hearing earlier. The parties would avoid my charges for travel time, airfare, airport parking, car rental hotels and meals, uh, all of which will add markedly to the total cost of this arbitration. But, says the arbitrator, the collective bargaining process, including arbitration, has traditionally involved in-person meetings. Many people prefer in-person meetings because they allow for collegial discussions during breaks that are more difficult, if not impossible, during video hearings and that may result in settlements. Uh, so the arbitrator sends, in the end, I don't have unfettered authority. I can only order a video hearing in exceptional circumstances. And quote, although I consider economic efficiency important, I cannot find that economic efficiency alone constitutes exceptional circumstances.
end quote. Uh, and I think that's going to be the rule generally in arbitration. Uh, many arbitrators are members of the National Academy of Arbitrators. The ones who are uh, tend to be the ones who were uh, very highly regarded by their peers. Uh, and so uh, I would anticipate that uh, arbitrators would follow uh, the advisory opinion uh, of the National Academy of Arbitrators. One thing this arbitrator doesn't mention that I just wanted to point out is, uh, in particular, the reason why I don't like remote arbitration hearings. You can't cross-examine somebody as effectively in a remote hearing as you can in person. Cross-examination uh, is kind of a gestalt sort of process. When you're cross-examining a witness, you're looking at the witness. You're looking at the whole body of the witness. You're assessing their body language. But you're also taking in that same information about whoever the arbitrator is, uh, the, what the other side is doing, even what the court reporter and witnesses are doing. You're getting a reaction to uh, what the witness is saying from this body of people and you alter your questioning and your style of uh, questioning on the basis of that. Uh, I have never found that cross-examination is as remotely effective in a remote hearing as it is on an in-person basis. So I would add that to the list of what this arbitrator had to say. Well, sorry I didn't get to any more cases than I did uh, this month because I really did want to spend some time on the three Supreme Court actions that will have some impact on all of us. Uh, I will get to more cases in the uh, August edition of First Thursday. Uh, with that, I hope all of you have a wonderful summer and that we don't get... Um, fried out of our homes on the, or fried into our homes on the basis of excessive heat this summer. Look forward to seeing you at uh, LRIS's next upcoming seminar, which will be September uh, in Las Vegas. This will be one of our two last seminars at the Flamingo Hotel before uh, we move uh, to a different hotel in Las Vegas. Uh, this seminar is going to be on grievances and arbitration. Uh, we'll be talking about everything from how arbitrators assess grievances, both disciplinary and non-disciplinary grievances, to the nuts and bolts of uh, arbitration. How do you pick an arbitrator? How do you effectively put on a case? All the way to um, past practices and the continuing duty to bargain. Uh, it's going to be a great seminar Look forward to seeing you there. Uh, and with that, uh, this is Will Aitchison signing off. <laughs>